Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. If you listen to episode 142, I had Dr. Yael Jaffe on the show to talk about how some of our genes can give us insights into nutrients that may be beneficial to our body. In the 18 years since the Human Genome Project was completed, we have been learning a lot about genes and how it influences our health. What's up everyone, I'm Brian Carroll and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And today we'll be talking about our genes and how it impacts our ability to detoxify. Dr. Elena Krasnov is on the show and we'll be focused on what struggles we can have with detoxing and which genes are important for the detox systems in the body. So let's jump into my conversation with Dr. Elena. Dr. Elena Krasnov is a naturopathic doctor with extensive training in medical genetics and chelation therapy. She continually integrates new research into her practice and encourages patients to participate in their own healing process to help enhance their quality of life. Thank you for coming on to the show, Dr. Elena. Thank you for being uh, for asking me to be here. Of course. And I'm really excited to chat with you because we're going to be talking a lot about uh, genetics and SNPs and detox. But before we dive into that, let's learn a little bit more about you and what is your background? So my background is in microbiology. I've studied that. And then I studied genetics at the University of Toronto. I have always been interested in genetics. Um, It was always a curiosity of mine. I was interested in plants, biology, since I was very young. So it was a natural progression for me to go into that field. And I have been doing that ever since uh, the late 80s. So what is it specifically about genetics that's really gotten you really passionate about it? I was just always fascinated about how the DNA works, how, you know, certain little nucleotides decide what we become at the end, whether you have curly hair, straight hair, blue eyes, you know, dark eyes. It's, it's, it's just always been fascinating subjects for me, and, and I wanted to explore it further. And I know the Human Genome Project, that completed back in 2003. So we've had about, what is that, 18 years now since the genome has first been mapped. So we are definitely learning a lot about the genome, and there's still quite a bit to learn. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about genes. What is it with our genes that allow us to function the way that we function, and how does it impact our behavior, how we look, how our bodies function overall? Well, we we are still kind of learning as we go along. New information is constantly being sort of put up front, and 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 we continue to develop things in terms of how we use the information we have. So genetic diseases and gene mapping and, you know, CRISPR technology that has currently just come on, on the market, on the market, on, on uh, learning how to integrate that into diseases. I just happened to hear recently on MSNBC, they were talking about how you could slice out part of part of your genetics and make you resistant to viral infections. Um, They presumably tried to do that in China for now, HIV, which is controversial. They did it on a set of twins. So I'm not sure how far that can go, but learning how to 
sort of excise parts of the genes that cause late on stage disease is, is, is I think something for the future that is going to become more and more available as we go along. Yeah, it's it's uh, super interesting when you're looking at genes because I I believe I saw some uh, research that came out that um like even in identical twins uh, if each identical twin has a set of kids their kids are more identical to being siblings than they are being cousins even though on paper we would say that they're cousins but that just shows you how tight that uh, genetic um, expression or that genome within them can be. And, and also, in terms of disease and genetics, they have studied identical twins where only one twin would get the disease and the other one would not. So there is a lot to be said for environmental factors that will affect whether you get sick or not in certain things. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And one of the things you like to focus on is uh, the detox pathways within our system, um, speaking of environmental factors. so. You know, a lot of people ask, aren't our bodies designed to naturally remove toxins? And um, why does it seem like if they are designed to remove toxins, for whatever reason, some people get bound up and they're not able to excrete toxins as easily as the next person? So, yeah, we are obviously designed to excrete toxins or we wouldn't exist as species. But because of different variations in genetics, some people can excrete toxins much more efficiently. Others also would accumulate toxins more because of the lack of, you know, capability of excreting it, and therefore will become more toxic. Like two people in the same environment, one will get sick, the other one will not. And that depends on their ability to detoxify. And, and longevity comes into it because some people, no matter what they do, they will live a long, happy, healthy life, and others could be doing a lot of different things and would still end up sick and die early. And that's where genetics and genetic detoxification comes in, as well as effects of environment, diet, lifestyle, and stress, and and their effect on gene expression. Is epigenetics part of the reason why some people might have a hard time detoxing and other people... Um, don't have any issues whatsoever? I think in a way, yes, it is. There is such things as, you know, there is a disease called Gilbert's syndrome where the patients tend to be more, sometimes they're more prone to being jaundiced. They do have higher bilirubin and they also have a higher uh, degree of burden. So they their detoxification pathway is faltered. So they are more, more sensitive to chemicals. They are more sensitive to toxicity and they have to take extra care to keep on stimulating the liver and the gallbladder to cleanse so they can stay on top. And, and I think that's a good example of genetic variation and, and, and predisposition to disease. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of interesting because it seems like a lot of uh, species on the planet are kind of the canary in the coal mines for environmental toxins and other toxins that are around us. And it seems like the human body, for whatever reason, is very resilient to be able to handle a lot of toxic load before we completely just break down. So why is it that the human body seems to be able to handle a much higher load of toxins before we break down, while other species can't handle that much before they break down? 
Well, part of it is because we're just larger in size and therefore can handle a higher toxic load. And that's why you look at canary because it's a smaller bird. It will be affected more by toxins and it will get affected you know, a lot faster than the humans sitting in the same mine because we are able to tolerate higher levels before it shuts down our system. And large ocean mammals like dolphins, uh, whales, can, can withstand quite a lot of toxicity in their bodies before they actually die. Whereas smaller fish, you're going to see much more problems, much more genetic variability. Sometimes it affects their reproduction and you can see that quicker because they are smaller and therefore it requires less toxins to throw them off. I think it's also, it's, it's, it's basically per body weight. So the smaller you are, that's why children are affected more than adults because they're smaller and therefore it takes less of a toxin to make them unwell, to make them sick. Do you... There was also, sorry to interrupt. There was also a study in Mexico where they looked at pregnant women who were exposed to arsenic, low levels of arsenic, and they detected changes in DNA in the offsprings. So it can even be translated that way. Yeah, one of my questions was going to be, is it also um, the speed of reproduction? So like it takes humans a long time to reproduce, whereas smaller animals typically reproduce much faster. So are we seeing more um, issues within those species because they're reproducing and going through many more generations than we are? But in theory, by the time we would get to the same amount of generations as what the smaller animals have gone through, we would probably see the same type of uh, changes um, in the body and in the genes. I don't know that. I haven't actually ever thought of that. It's possible, but I, I, I really don't know. I don't know if it is because the reproduction cycle is shorter. It's, it's possible if you think about it, because the toxic sort of parent keeps reproducing and passing on the toxicity in more, it, it's possible, just, just theoretically. I don't know that for a fact, though. I haven't looked into it. So when we're looking at genes, what are SNPs exactly? You mentioned SNPs earlier. So SNPs are single nucleotide changes that, that happen within the DNA, and it's really as much as one nucleotide. You can switch from a, from a C to a G, from a T to an A, and it creates variability. Not that the, the gene cannot function, it just functions slightly different. And so it would code for a protein in a slightly different way. It would still work. It's just going to not work the same. So it creates minor variabilities. It's not, you know, it's not going to cause major disease, but it's just going to change slight differences. A good example for that would be the, the main cytochrome P450 gene that will produce an enzyme that's going to be not as effective in removing sort of, you know, heterocyclic amines or polycystic aromatics, things you get from smoked meat, from grilling, you know, all those dark charts on the barbecue. So people who will sort of have a change in that gene will be more affected by eating too much grilled meat than, than say somebody else, right? So 
you know, you and I might do the same thing, yet I would get sick and you wouldn't. And, and those are an example of uh, single nucleotide polymorphism is just, is just a slight little change that doesn't change the whole gene, but it just changes that little bit. How many, how many SNPs are available in the genes? Oh, I would think there are millions of SNPs, but we don't know about all of them. <laughs> we just know the ones that we have looked at. And there are always new ones coming up. And then they're also constantly deciding, you know, this one is not a good representation. There's a different SNP. So within the same genome, there could be, you know, like lots of different SNPs that code for something very similar. For example, uh, there is five or six different SNPs that code for glutathione peroxidase, which is uh, the main detoxification detox gene called GPX1 that encodes for the glutathione, which protects us from oxidative damage. So there is like five or six known uh, SNPs. Some people have both pairs, some people are missing some pairs, some have three out of five, some have all five, and their ability to undergo oxidative damage is going to be dependent on how many SNPs they're missing. And so then they would have to take more care and more precaution, maybe take more supplements to make sure that they are oxidatively protecting their tissues. So how do they, how are they uh, researching SNPs exactly? Like, are they, how, I'm trying to figure out how to ask a question. How do they know that this SNP does X is basically what I'm trying to get to. Ah, that's a good question. How do they know which ones? Do? I think they, they look at diseases and they try to look at the mapping and then and then the SNPs that they already know, they they follow that through versus the disease. I'm just just sort of thinking out loud here as to how I would approach it if I was doing research. You look at what's known and then you try and tie it to to something new. And then I don't really have a good answer for that. Um, do you know if they have any way to isolate out a specific SNP and then be able to run tests on that SNP to see if it, um, you know, how glutathione impacts that SNP or anything like that? Or is it more based off of um, we have this set of data with all these different SNPs available and people have sent in health questionnaires and whatnot and this is what they're presenting with. So then are they looking at correlations? It, it, I think it's it's the correlation of SNPs to disease, not the other way around, because really, if you think about it, a SNP is just a single nucleotide change. You, you wouldn't be able to pick it out out of this huge amount of data. Plus, not all SNPs, not all segments of DNA code for anything useful, right? There is a lot of DNA that is there that, that doesn't code for any genes or that we don't know that it codes for. Some also are not expressed. So, so you have to look at it as, uh, is there environmental factors that are gonna turn on certain genes or are they gonna stay turned off and therefore not express themselves? Like you could have all sorts of genes, but if you're not expressing it, it's not going to affect you. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think, the the example of glutathione is first you would look at whether your glutathione is functioning and then you would look at the genetic markers and see 
are they there or they're missing? It's not, it's not the other way around. You, you would look, it's from disease to the DNA, not from DNA to disease, I don't think. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like with uh, millions of different SNPs available, it's going to take take a little time to uh, research all that and figure it out. And since it's only been about 18 years, we still have a long ways to go. Plus, not everything is useful. I think if 23andMe, sometimes they put in new genes and then they drop others out of their sequence. So sometimes the research comes in and they decide this is really not a good marker. So then they drop that off their panel. And sometimes they use a different one because there's more than one single, like it's not something written in stone. I'm sure that there are similar SNPs on different chromosomes that can take over if something is missing. And, and we don't know everything there is to know yet. Yep. Yep. That's why well, we just, have research. <laughs> just as an example, when I looked at my own DNA, half of the things that were in the report don't apply to me. So even though it said that I would have this and that and that and that, I don't have any of those things. So they're not expressed or for whatever reason, maybe because my lifestyle is so good or because I do all these things. Well, none of those issues that are listed in there actually apply to me. So I was like, very interesting, but good to know, but it, it makes no difference. Yeah, which... That brings up a very interesting question because people, you know, there's there's more and more genetic uh, tests that people can run and it just spits out like all this information that like you just mentioned might not apply directly to you. But a lot of these companies, they feel like they have to give people um, information or what to do or what they can do with the information that they're getting from taking a gene test. So they feel like they have to supply the person with information to follow, um, which with gene expression might not be the appropriate pathway for them to follow. Is that correct? Absolutely. I think, I think the problem with having people having too much information is, and the, the example of, it's a really controversial example, is of uh, Angelina Jolie finding out that she had the genetic, the genes for breast cancer and going through radical treatments. And a lot of people looking at her are also doing that. And uh, it's not a given that that's the best way to go forward. It may be this for her, but because she is a public figure and she looks, people look upon her as an example, I think it also probably promotes some people to do radical things that may not necessarily benefit them. Just because you have the genes doesn't mean you're going to get the disease. Yes, you could have 80% chance of getting it, but you also have 20% chance of not getting it. So nothing, it's, nothing is ever 100%. And I think people need to be a little bit more positive and be more proactive in how they can improve their health, even if they don't have the genetics that's necessarily going to make them superhumans. Yep. It's a very good point because we can't really predict the future. So like the choice she made, it could have been the right choice, but we won't ever know because we don't know what would have happened if she didn't make that choice. Absolutely. I think, and I actually know several people that took her as an example and did the same thing. Mm. Having maybe had no need for that. Yep. And and it is, it's, it's, it's a pretty invasive radical procedure on the other hand i do know others 
who's uh, who had the obviously had the inherited gene. The mother had the disease. The daughter ended up having the disease, and and maybe in her case it would have been a good idea to do that, but we wouldn't know. Maybe maybe she could have done other things to prevent the onset of cancer by doing something different in her life that she did not do. So again, it it it's always that balance that you need to take to account. Yep. I think the same applies to colon cancer as well. So so unless you have like familial polyposis where your risk of colon cancer astronomically goes up when you have the certain genes, it's it's you know, you're not gonna go call, take your colon out, but you should probably have, you know, colonoscopy more often than an average person so that you can catch it earlier. So yeah. Yeah, there's there's um, there must have been a lot of issues with this type of stuff because, like, if you do the 23andMe, um, and if you want to see if you have the gene for uh, Alzheimer's, you have to hit, like, 15 different buttons to say, yes, I actually do want to see that gene and see if I have it or not um, before they finally give you that information. And I'm going to assume it's because people, you know, they might find out that they're more prone to get Alzheimer's and that could really impact them mentally on what their future might look like. And they might not want to put that type of uh, a situation on loved ones. Um, but you see that with other people, too, who are um, looking to potentially have kids, but then they get their gene uh, mapping back and then they find out stuff that they might not want to pass on to kids. So maybe they forego not having kids just because of that information. True, but something like Alzheimer's is there's no direct link between a specific genetic mutation and Alzheimer's because there's a lot of factors. There is there is the predisposition, so to say, but then there's also lifestyle. There is diet. There is, you know, like now they say, you know, exercise is 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 a better medicine for Alzheimer's than a lot of medication, especially like dancing and. And but on the other hand, I do know of someone who was tested. So the father of the person was tested to be positive for some form of genetic disease that promotes colon cancer. Forget that I don't know exactly which it is. <clears throat> so two of his children got tested. One was fine. One ended up having uh, the genetic defect. So now she does already have a child, which, so she hasn't checked the child yet because it's a baby, but now she's thinking she wants to have IVF for future children so she can screen out for the disease. And I actually can't blame her for that because that makes sense. That, like, so that kind of thing probably is not a bad idea because then you, you're taking a risk of exposing your children to potential really devastating disease. There was actually a program I saw on TV about genetic um, stomach cancer in very young age. So there was a group of family where a mother and two daughters died from stomach cancer at the age of like 29, 35, something like that. And it was, and one of them still chose to have her children no matter what. And the other one actually decided not to, just not to pass it on. They were both carriers. So it's a very, it's a very, it's a devastating and it's a very difficult choice. 
that people do. But if we already have the information, I think we owe it to our, to our children to do something proactive about it and not willingly, knowingly pass things that will kill them. Yep. That might be a little too controversial for some people. But I happen to think that if I knew I had a disease like that, I would probably choose myself not to pass it on. Yep. It's kind of like, is it Huntington's that pretty much if you have the gene, then it's almost 100% that you're going to develop it? Yeah, but the issue with Huntington's is because it doesn't show itself till later in life, it's a little too late yeah. to test for it. So by that time, people have already had children. So now we know about it and you can do it earlier. But before, I think the reason that it kept propagating is because people lived long enough to reproduce without knowing. Yep. So, so I think eventually it'll probably be, become extinct because it's not going to be. Now we know a lot about it and now we, we know what to do about it. Mm. Well, um, let's see. If you could pick four important uh, SNPs that you would um, be looking at in a patient for proper detoxification. I know you mentioned a couple already. Are there any other ones that you would want to uh, talk about? Well, well, the, first of all, the, the CYP1A, that is the one that codes for cytochrome P450. The cytochrome P450 is an extremely important detox um, mechanism that we all have. That would probably be my number one um, gene to look at. Uh, I would look at glutathione peroxidase because glutathione is an essential antioxidant and uh, prevents oxidative damage. I would look at diamine oxidase and histamine transferase. Those are the two genes that cause people with allergies a lot of grief. So that they're responsible for histamine breakdown in the body. And so when that mechanism is not working out, you're going to have a lot more allergies. And so if you do have that um, sort of weakness, there are certain things you should avoid, like drinking alcohol, for example, because that would make you feel worse. So uh, one of the things too, I, 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 I'm part of a sort of histamine, some kind of a Facebook group with people with high histamine reactions. I'm, I'm in there just because I'm curious to know what people are putting in. And a lot of people are very, very sensitive and they have issues with this food and that food and everybody's confused as to what they should be doing or they should be taking. It's more like a support group, but uh, there's some common things that that, you know, you do not do when you have a high histamine reaction. And if you're genetically predisposed, you should not be eating, you know, shellfish, smoked fish, things that um, are going to impact you. Sorry. Um, it's easier to prevent than they realize if they, if they actually did their genetic testing. The other one I would look at is the COMT gene. The, that one is responsible for breaking down neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And so they will be effective for, for our mood, but it is also important for detoxifying estradiol. So COMT gene is affected by 
uh, folic acid under the folate, and it can cause buildup of unhealthy estrogen and, and promote breast cancer and uterine cancer and ovarian cancer. And so that is an important gene that you want to make sure, you know, if you do have a problem with that gene, you want to take all the precaution and do take preventive measures uh, to protect yourself from develop, from being susceptible to, you know, breast cancer, breast cysts, ovarian cysts, et cetera, and stuff like that. Perfect. And um, I know testing is a little bit different for you up in Canada than it is down in the States, but what are some good ways to test for these different SNPs? I know you mentioned getting the raw data from 23andMe as one option, but there's also other options out there. Well, in the U.S., there is a lot of companies uh, that are offering DNA testing. There are some companies that sell vitamins that offer also DNA testing. I know Pure Encapsulations and Design for Health both have uh, DNA tests that they use. Definitely Pure Encapsulation has, they have a whole genomic section where they you, you can get certain vitamins based on what your SNPs are. And so they're doing uh, quite a bit of research that, that, that uh, you can utilize their supplements based on your results. Um, I know that the labs that do other testing, like urine, heavy metals, they also do um, DNA testing. I'm just trying to think of one. There is, I think it's called, I can't think right now of what it's called. I do use them for one of the stool tests uh, called uh, GI map, where they map genetics of the bacteria that's in your gut. They also do a general genetic test, but I would just work with a, like your local health, um, health advisor provider, uh, and I'm sure they can recommend something that they use. You don't want to just go and get one off Amazon, and then find out that you've spent three, four hundred, five hundred dollars for something that's not useful. Right. But twenty-three and Me in Canada, it's it's the most inexpensive test. It's like fairly. I should say cheap, but if you don't look at the raw data and if you don't have anyone to look at your raw data, the information they provide is very limited. Like they're going to tell you, you have cardiovascular disease predisposition or you don't have it. And then, you know, you, you, you may have diabetes. I find that is a useless amount of information. Like, you know, any one of us could be having predisposition to diabetes. So, so what does that mean? I found that their information was not very useful. Yep. And I was glad that I could get the raw data so I could play with it myself and, and figure it out. I actually got my son to do it too. And we were, we were still analyzing. It was interesting to look at his versus mine just, just because I was curious. Uh, but yeah. but I, would, I wouldn't advise just doing DNA tests out of the blue without talking to someone first because I have had patients who went and did it and then it, then, then nothing. They, they didn't do anything with their results. They just spend the money and didn't use it in any way. Yep. And for the 23andMe, they kind of hide the raw data. So if people just uh, do a search for 23andMe raw data, then they should find the link that takes you right to the page to download it. Um, you can you can ask them for uh, it is there. You can just download it, but it's not clearly visible. Nope. Yeah. yeah. So it's a uh, it's buried pretty far in on the site. So it is there. 
You just if I didn't it. know to ask for it, I wouldn't know it was available. Exactly. Like, you have to I be looking to for it. Yeah, that's yep. right. Yeah. Well, um, that is there any final things that you want to make sure that we cover when it comes to snips genes and detoxification i just want to point uh, out that you know genetics isn't everything your environment has a lot to do with it your ability to handle stress has a lot to do with it whether you sleep or you don't sleep will influence how you express your genes so lifestyle and environment will change cause your genes to be either expressed or suppressed and so you can always manipulate it to the to your advantage so i don't think it's a death sentence if your genes say that you're going to have some disease because there's always something you can there's a lot of things you can do you just need to know what to do and be proactive about it perfect and what is your vision of what healthy looks like and what are three things you do daily to reach that vision i think the definition of healthy is when you can sort of experience life to, to, to the most and, and, and do whatever you want and not be sort of impacted by inability or pain or, or some kind of a disability that precludes you from just enjoying your life to the fullest. And the three things that I would do to make sure that, that I get the best out of life is to make sure that I get enough sleep, that I eat organic food uh, as much as I can help it, drink clean filtered water and and you may not need to filter your water but in toronto it's a good idea uh, you know try and go on holiday where you can get fresh air uh making sure you learn how to handle stress because stress is the biggest detriment to health nowadays uh financial health stress relationship stress any kind of stress again learning how to handle stress will lead to a nicer life just a healthier life overall perfect well people can find you at naturopathyclinic.com and that's www.naturopathyclinic.com are you on any social media channels as well yes i do have an instagram account under dr elena krasnov and i do have a facebook group for the toronto naturopathic clinic uh it's not a facebook group sorry it's a facebook page where we post um, sort of latest uh, advances, we post quotes, we post um, um, food, um, what do you call it? Different inspirational uh, things, recipes, you know, sometimes I do a cooking video, uh, sometimes I have to train my patients as to how to eat and how not to eat. And, uh, and, and so I post that on Instagram and Facebook. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show, talking about genes, detoxification, and uh, a couple of the important SNPs that we should be looking for. Um, I definitely appreciate it. Genes are absolutely fascinating, and we have a long way to go to really understand them, but I'm, it's fun to see just a progression we've made in the last 18 years with it. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I've said it before, the work being done around genetics is absolutely amazing, and I'm excited to see what can be possible in the future. We still have a long way to go to fully understand how all of this works, but we've made great progress in 18 years. Next week, I have Danny Nahara on the show. Let's go learn who he is. I am here with Danny Nahara. Hey, Danny, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? One unique thing about me that most people don't know. 
I, I, some people think, oh, he has a PhD, yada, yada, yada. Probably the thing I'm most proud of that most people don't know in my life is that I was the best man for four of my different close friends. And we all kind of like hung out together and they all chose me, which is really strange, but I'm so proud and humbled by that. So it's kind of, kind of a weird quirk, I guess. Nice. Been to a lot of weddings then. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, we won't talk about the rest of the story. <laughs> well, what will we be learning about in our interview together? Oh, insects, the beauty of insects, the beauty of honeybees, all the interactions, how to, how to love yourself and the ecosystem, how to make the bees be part of your life and the insects be part of your life. Uh, just all, all putting a positive light on it all because it is all necessary and it's all beautiful. And minus honeybees, what are your favorite insects? Minus honeybees. My favorite insects are probably praying mantises. And I grew up Ooh. watching Michael Jordan play basketball, and he just had this killer mentality. And when you watch a praying mantis stalk its prey and then shoot its arms out with this lightning fast strike, it is just phenomenal. And I, I used to do research where these little itty bitty baby mantises would jump off their little ledges and catch flies midair. And, uh, they're just so efficient at what they do and very beautiful. And what are your top three tips to protect our natural environment? The top three tips to protect the natural environment, I would say, you know, be part of it, number one, because then you're going to see it more. You're going to be you're going to care for it more. Um, that's number one. Absolutely. Number two, use as few pesticides, chemicals, electricity, any of that stuff as possible. All that stuff will contribute to less overall effects on the ecosystem. And then the last one, probably the most important one, is make sure that, you know, other people understand what you're doing. So educate other people about treating the ecosystems properly. Get that next generation trained up so they can love our beautiful Pacific Northwest, our lush green everythings that we have around us. So one year ago, I started with my own beehive right when the world was shutting down. And within a couple months, I had two hives. And by the end of the season, I was able to get 104 pounds of honey. It is an amazing experience working with bees, and I am excited to share this episode with you. So until next week, keep climbing to the peak of your health.